Hi, this is Lily DeHoyas Anderson, and we're doing extra content for Patreon listeners on Choosing Glories Patreon site. Thanks for joining me here. This is a sad topic, and I am just going to put a few brief remarks here about the school shooting that happened recently in Uvalde, Texas. Of course, you know, we had the shooting in the grocery store in Buffalo just before that. It's always particularly heinous when it involves children as the victims, but we're talking about a time where people's care for human life and their connection to society is pretty pretty damaged in many cases. I hope you've had a chance to listen to the extra content on Noah from earlier in in the year. I talked a lot about violence there and gave some statistics that I won't repeat completely but are worth are worth considering. And just part of those things that I will mention again are that, you know, we've had almost 6,000 years of recorded history for humankind. For 500 years, we've had gunpowder combat. For 150 years, we've had repeating firearms. So firearms with the ability to shoot many times without reloading. And that's existed for over 150 years now. But we didn't have a single school shooting until the late 1970s. So although I understand that we are concerned about the possession of, of uh, guns in the hands of criminals and the, the ones that are available on the street and things like that, or even that are purchased legally but that are used in cases like this, that doesn't seem to have been the deciding factor. If, if you look at the history of weaponry, why have these things just started in the last 50 years, not quite 50 years even, when, when we've had this firepower available to us for over 150 years? So I quoted Dave Grossman a lot in the extra content on Noah, and he's a great resource, a lieutenant colonel in the Army, a psychologist who taught at West Point. He's done a lot of research, personal research on killing and how the military has had to concern itself with that issue, of course, throughout the history of time, but how things are changing now. And to cut to one of the punchlines that he brings, it's video games. It's video games. The proliferation of violent video games where we have increasingly realistic graphics and our kids are put in a situation if they're playing these games where it's more and more lifelike and where it really overcomes that natural human inhibition against killing one of our own kind. And this is a a serious issue. I really plead with you that if you have these Grand Theft Auto, Call of Duty, whatever, I don't even stay current with any of that, so I don't know what is out there completely, but please don't have your kids playing those things. Of course... Similar about movies and TV, there's a lot of depiction of violence, and it's more and more graphic. And all of these things desensitize the soul. They desensitize the spirit. Maybe you've had missionaries come home, and you know that some of these missionaries who have really been trying to live in the spirit while on their missions come home and are kind of shocked at what's on TV or what's in the movies. And that's a good thing. You know, that's a good thing that... 
that they have been so immersed in seeking the spirit that they are offended by the kinds of depictions or stories or whatever that we have in our media. But that should remind us that we can all can all step back and take a good look and say, are we doing things that desensitize our spirits and desensitize our, our souls so that we're not as horrified? I'll quote Alexander Pope again, I've done this many times, such great insight from you know, hundreds of years ago, where Alexander Pope, the English poet, wrote, Vice is a creature of such frightful mien, M-I-E-N meaning face, vice is a creature of such frightful mien that to be hated needs but to be seen. But seen too oft, familiar with her face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. Such an insightful but horrifying sequence that we can start to get used to something, we endure it, we become desensitized, and then we find it, you know, pitiable, or we kind of find something redeeming in it, and then we can too easily fall into a place where we embrace the very things that that once horrified us. So, of course, when it comes to these tragic events in our society, we really need to talk to our kids. But a lot of what our talking needs to be with them, honestly, is listening and letting them explain. Now, they don't have a lot of vocabulary sometimes around these things, depending on their age. The younger ones may not have a lot of ability to articulate, but it's good practice for them to think about how they feel. Maybe you've looked online and you've seen depictions of emotions with those kind of happy face emojis, but they can show happy, sad, angry, confused, surprised. Anyway, lots of of depictions of emotions through a very simple character there. And it's worth, you know, printing those up or pulling them up on your phone or something and asking the kids, the younger kids, you know, do any of these things represent how you feel? Do you feel like any of these faces to get them talking about things? Because we do want them to get used to articulating their emotions. We make big mistakes in our society when we repress or we encourage others to repress or just because we're not more aware, we, you know, inadvertently kind of allow our children to repress all their feelings. You know, when we say things like, how do you feel? And they say, I don't know. Sometimes we drop it. Now, there's a fine line here because it's not about hounding them, of course. It's not about harassing them or trying to drag things out of them. But it is about creating an atmosphere that is sufficiently safe, where they know they have our attention, where they know we care. There's eye contact, or we're sitting next to each other, or we're going on a walk. We're doing something together that's you know, comfortable and safe and involved and connected. And, and then we try to help help them understand their feelings and learn to say what their feelings are. This is so important, whatever the situation is, not just these horrific events, but to help them understand how to articulate their feelings is a, is a process. Don't be in a hurry about it, but, but persist. Share your own feelings in gentle ways that are age appropriate so we don't horrify our children about the things that may have affected us, but that we, we allow them to see that it's good to talk about those things. And as I said, listening is so important, not placing ideas in their head. You know, I'm concerned in some of the news reports and so on, they'll talk about a child or they'll even have a little moment of interview with a child, of course, face obscured and so on. But in those interviews, sometimes, you know, the child is already using words that are kind of beyond their normal age experience. So you've got a six or a seven-year-old saying things like, well, I feel really traumatized that language has become so familiar and so common in our society, but it disturbs me that that is the case. I don't think it's good for us to put this this idea into our kids' heads that they can just say, I'm traumatized. 
I mean, maybe it's too late. Maybe they've got that vocabulary. If that's the case, fine. But but I don't like the idea that they label themselves as now, you know, I've been hurt in this serious way because of what happened. And and so without being the, the victim themselves, you know, but other people who've heard about it or who were kind of in a more peripheral role, but but these children still kind of see themselves as traumatized. And it's the label that I'm concerned about, not the idea. If we want to understand, certainly, if there is some trauma involved and deal with it and detoxify it. But but these labels are concerning to me, that now everybody and his uncle is traumatized. Now, remember, I've talked about this so often. I'm going to talk about it again. We have, were created anti-fragile. God made us, his children, with the kind of capacity that we can overcome through Christ— whatever we have to deal with, that there is always that capacity in us that if we turn to our Heavenly Father, we turn to our Savior, Jesus Christ, He can consecrate our affliction for our good and and really, really consecrate it for our good, meaning not just that we're going to survive or recover, but that we're going to grow and become and flourish because of the hard things that happen to us. Now, we should not seek out these hard things, of course, but when they happen, We can be confident that God is willing and waiting and hoping for us to turn to him so that he can fulfill this promise and make of us what we were created to be, stronger, more powerful, more capable, more understanding, more wise, more compassionate. And all of these things can come from heartache and hardship and and bad situations. That is the design you know, I, I saw some headline that talked about an opinion piece about something like, where is God in these moments? And and that's always so sad to me that people don't understand. They just think if, if God were, is real, he, why would he let these bad things happen? Well, he doesn't ordain them. He never foreordains them because he never foreordains sin or evil. And he does not delight in evil. He never does. He sorrows for evil. Nevertheless, he has a plan that is so perfectly and marvelously engineered, so generously engineered, that it is completely and perfectly designed that when these hard things happen, if we come to him, he can make of us what we came here to become and this is why, again, the echo from the temple, from the Garden of Eden, where Eve asks, is there no other way? And the answer is, no, there is no other way. We must pass through the sorrow so that we can know good from evil. We can choose the good. We can come to our Savior and become more developed in our anti-fragility, in our core strength, in our core qualities that are God's in embryo. So don't become, you know, challenged in your faith and help our, help your children not become desperate in their faith, thinking that like, oh, God should have stopped this. God is pretty hands off when it comes to this earth in many respects. He has to be invited in. Now we can invite him into our lives, in which case he is present for us and will bless us in every scenario in the way that will best help us come to eternal life. So sometimes that's, you know, immediate relief, and a lot of times it's not. A lot of times it's more oriented toward growth, and he will bless us in that journey of growth so that we can become more like his son. Let's make sure we talk to our children about one of the sweet promises in the Doctrine and Covenants concerning death. In section 42, verse 45, 
Thou shalt live together in love, insomuch that thou shalt weep for the loss of them that die, and more especially for those that have not hope of a glorious resurrection. In other words, the real tragedy is not death, it's unrepented sin, just a reminder here in the verse, but it is appropriate for us to weep for the loss of them that die. We should live together in love and compassion in such a way that it is sorrowful to us when people close to us pass because we're going to miss them for a temporary period before we're reunited. And certainly it's not, it's not wrong to, to feel compassion, sorrow, and even weep for the loss of innocence in a case like this terrible school shooting. But look at verse 46. Section 42, verse 46, And it shall come to pass that those that die in me shall not taste of death, for it shall be sweet unto them. Now, I just want to say that personally I have clung to that scripture over years where innocent people have died. Now, obviously we know that there are righteous people who may suffer with an illness, a terminal illness, or an accident, something that has caused them pain as they pass from this life to the next. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, God makes a promise here that I believe he fulfills, and I am not going to try to tell him what that's supposed to look like, but I trust that there is a sweetness about death for the righteous and for the innocents. Now, we've even heard some amazing stories. Remember the Colville miracle where kids were held hostage and so on, and some of the kids later started talking about angels that were among them. Like, who are we to deny God's capacity to fulfill these promises, to comfort his beloved children, particularly the young, particularly the innocent, but all the righteous. And I choose to believe that. And I hope that we'll teach our children to believe that, to trust that God keeps these promises, that he is not abandoning us in time of need or abandoning the innocent, particularly these children. Make sure that we normalize their feelings, whatever those feelings are. We can teach these principles while still saying, I understand why you feel that way, or it makes sense, or you know, let's talk about that. Of course, if they're having nightmares and so on, they need to talk more. They may need to sleep on the floor of your room for a while. We don't want to get into too many regressive habits, but it's okay. It's normal for people to struggle a little bit, depending on how close they were to the situation or how much it touches on other experiences or fears. Again, there's a sweet spot of like normalizing and understanding their feelings while not turning it into something bigger than it needs to be and helping them understand that Bottom line is that this, if we get through this correctly, we're going to be stronger. We're going to have greater faith, more compassion, more connection to our fellow men, and more desire to treat people correctly and kindly. We want to, to make sure we're emphasizing their strength, not their weakness, while understanding the feelings that may emerge. I do want to say just a couple of other things. As I've said, and as research strongly suggests, the proliferation of violent video games is definitely a factor here, but I think that there are other really important factors that should not be neglected. Fatherlessness is a huge issue in our society. Now, I'm not just talking about kids that grow up without a father in the home, but I'm talking about kids that grow up even if they do have a father in the home who don't have much of a connection with that father. We are talking about young males. They are the ones who typically do these shootings. The lack of strong male role models and connections with those male role models is an enormous factor. I think I've mentioned in another context something called protest masculinity. This is a fascinating idea and tragic, which talks about how young boys growing up without a strong father presence 
find themselves at some point wanting to separate from their mother because they're male, not female, while daughters can grow up kind of in the image of their moms, so to speak, or at least have a pretty strong role model in their mothers, a boy needs something different because he is different and he needs a man around and he needs to have a man who's involved and engaged with him, who does, you know, guy things and helps to tutor this young boy into being an appropriate man, one that is empathetic and kind and controls the power within him in order to bless rather than destroy. So this is such an important relationship for young men, and it's lacking with or without a father in the home. We see this lacking more and more in our society, and the costs are very high. So when this young boy is growing up and wants to, you know, kind of separate himself in his own identity from his mother. This is not conscious, of course, but it's a very natural process. And there's no good, strong male role model to land on and to then kind of emulate or use as a role model. What does he do? He ends up going too far. And he becomes kind of antisocial, violent, often violent against women. But this can include children, right? So We have a very strong indication that this is happening again and again in our society where there's family disintegration of all kinds, but particularly we've lost that strong father role very quickly and and for a long time now. We're starting to see some of the fruits. Chris and I watched a, I don't know what it was, Animal Planet or National Geographic special years ago, and I had read about protest masculinity not that long prior to us watching this special. And it was on some wildlife reserve in Africa where they were kind of transporting elephants from one place to the other, relocating parts of the herd. And they had taken some male adolescent elephants into a certain new area of the reserve to grow up in. And then a little while after that relocation, they found that there were rhinos being killed. And they thought, oh, the poachers are back because rhinos are quite a prize for poachers. They want that horn, which is supposed to be an aphrodisiac and whatever. So... They were stunned, however, to find out that the horns were not taken. Just the rhinos were killed, but the horns were left. So they thought, this can't be poachers, because that's what they would take. So they set up cameras and different ways to check on on what was going on, and they found that it was the young adolescent male elephants that were killing the rhinos. This is very atypical elephant behavior. Elephants don't kill rhinos. So... What was going on? Well, you know, they thought, how are we going to stop this? And somebody had the correct and brilliant idea to bring in adult bull elephants. These adult males, these bull elephants came into that reserve. They moved in some of these adult males and they whipped those adolescent elephants right into shape. This is not by chance. Men help to show where the boundaries are to young growing boys They show what is acceptable social behavior. They show how to connect with other men and with women and with children. There are other studies, I won't go into them now, I've talked about them before, that show that positive connection with a father is the best single predictor of developing empathy in the growing adolescent. Now that's that's really clear. That's really clear from many research studies. So when we're when we're Acting like that doesn't matter. We're in trouble. Now, if the father is not available, you know, we have a wonderful structure in the church. Sometimes it works, and I hope it will. We should try to get it to work. There are 
ministering brothers that can help to provide some of that interaction, that positive male role model and interaction stuff with our young growing boys. It could be an uncle or a grandfather. It could be a neighbor who takes interest in the family or we become friends with and we can kind of borrow them as surrogate grandparents. We've done that in different times where we've lived away from family for years and and I've always had some some wonderful relationships with people who were not related by blood, but did operate as kind of extended family relationships. Do what you can to cultivate those things if there is an absence of a father in the home. And if you do have a father in the home, what a blessing, but make sure that that relationship is cultivated in a healthy, positive way. Do what you can to provide that for your children. So incredibly important. We want our children also, of course, to connect with our Heavenly Father. And this time is another time to review and say, like, are we praying to our Heavenly Father? Are we feeling His love? There are ways to help our children notice the love that their Heavenly Father has for them. This is always an important thing to do and to renew if it hasn't been talked about for a while. And then knowing that our Heavenly Father has great power to bless and guide our lives, it is It makes so much sense to then accept his invitations, to obey his commandments, to covenant with him and keep those covenants in a way that allows him to bless us. And this, again, acts as a wonderful, wonderful boundary line for for our children as they grow up, if they want to please their Heavenly Father. And it helps them in their interactions in the world, as well as with their personal safety internally. Brothers and sisters, these are tough times. But God is ready to make lemonade out of lemons for us if we will turn to him. And if we pray as parents for help in helping our children, he will give it to us. And we can bless them and and be blessed ourselves in this journey. We can do this. We can choose glory. We can build Zion. Take care.